All right, good morning, good morning. How are we doing today? Beautiful, crisp fall day here in Kearney, Nebraska. Well, we're glad that you chose to join us for worship today. If you're a newcomer here today, my name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors at Carney E. Free, and we extend a special welcome to you. Thanks to everyone for prioritizing church this morning. We pray that you can connect well with God and well with a number of others here today as well. And um, to the venue, thanks for joining us also. Great to have you today as well. Uh, if you're a newcomer here or you weren't able to be here last Sunday, I want to just give you kind of a heads up that this morning well, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25, and this is really kind of the second part of a two-part uh, message. Last week we started to get into the purposes of the Old Testament law for us New Testament Christians, and we touched on that some, and today we'll kind of try to put a ribbon on it. It's pretty deep and complex, so if you weren't here last Sunday, you might want to go back and, and watch that one later on, as it'll probably help fill in a few blanks as it relates to today's message. But we're going to get started here today, again in Galatians 3, you can turn there well with me. If you go to Romans, to First and Second Corinthians, then you have Galatians, if you get over to Ephesians or Philippians, Colossians, you've gone a little bit too far, it's also a table of contents, thanks be to God for giving us that. You can use that table of contents, or if you have a Bible on your phone, you're welcome to use that as well. But to get us started here, before we jump into the scriptures, what I want you to do is, well, watch this little video from BibleProject.com. And we watch these from time to time as they're really helpful for all of us in the room who are visual learners. If you're a visual learner, this will help you, I think, hopefully understand some of what I will be saying today relative to the law. Take a look. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, no, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Yeah, don't worship other gods, don't make idols. 
And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others, and he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy, and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. Okay, that's a, that's a dense video. You won't get all of it, but I've watched that now three or four times, and each time I get something different as it relates to really understanding what the law is, what its purpose is for us today, how it applies for us today. You, you might have noticed in the beginning of that video, they asked the question, what are the purposes of the law, 
and which ones still apply to us today? And that's what we're going to seek to answer today. What are the purposes of the law, and which of the many of those 613 laws in the Old Testament applies to us as New Testament Christians today? So we should get done by about 5 p.m. You're going to need a lock-in today. I'm telling you, you're going to need a lock-in with me. Uh, sometimes on Sunday morning, we really seek to do inspirational messages. I, I love doing inspirational messages. A lot of times on Sunday mornings, we really do applicational messages. This is an instructional message. And this is one of those messages that, that if you choose to lock in for, for the next 35 minutes, you will have a better understanding of how a key part of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, relates to everything for us as Christians today. And you will be a little bit less haunted by, are we cherry-picking this question? Are we cherry-picking, I like this law and I don't like this law? No, we're not, and I'll explain that today. Uh, People ask, and it's probably good that they ask, because many of us think, like, why is it that you Christians... You practice these laws related to marriage. You talk about laws related to marriage, which are stated in the Old Testament. But you don't practice these laws that we talked about last week related to proper beard maintenance. Or why is it that you Christians continue to say that we must honor our mother and father? And yet, at the same time, you don't seem to be practicing the laws of kosher. You eat pork and shellfish. What's up, you people? Like, are you just cherry-picking those laws that you like and ignoring the ones that you don't like? Has anyone else been haunted by these questions? My guess is there are probably some in this room who have been haunted by these questions. And if not you, I would imagine you have friends who you would love to know Christ, and they find many of the laws in the Old Testament to be a stumbling block. And they're not sure what to do with them. And so again, I want you to lock in with me. It's going to require a little bit more mental focus today, though, than it normally does. But if you're in the business of taking notes, today, as I say frequently, would be a good Sunday to take notes. This is a good Sunday to take notes. And if you can lock in for the next 35 minutes, I think that you'll be rewarded with a better understanding of which laws apply to us today and what is God's purpose of the law. Let me tell you a little bit of my own story here. I... uh, started reading the Bible for the very first time when I was about 17 years old. First, I had been reading uh, Buddhist books and Hindu books and, and other things. And I had my, my three closest friends, well, were these African-American triplets. And they were serious Christians, Pentecostals. And they told me, Adrian, stop reading that stuff. You've got to read the Bible. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So I started reading the Bible, and I started, of course, as you do with any book, on page one. Right? That's a normal, natural thing to do, wouldn't it? And I really liked Genesis a lot. I mean, that was fun. There's a lot of great stories, amazing epics, just really neat, neat stuff. Then I liked Exodus a lot, too. Great epic stories. A little bit scary in points, but great stories. Enjoyed that also. Then I got to Leviticus, and then I put my Bible down. And they said, no, Adrian, you started in the wrong spot. Start with Matthew. Look at the words of Jesus. Well, why didn't you tell me? 
Okay, there are a lot of people like me around you who they would open up the Bible to, to the first books of the Bible and they say, what in the world do I do with this? Today I'm going to help you with those people. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. He's talking about Abraham and the promise that was made to Abraham and how it's now received by us by grace through faith. And now he's going to give some examples. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The promise given to Abraham was given to Abraham and to his seed, that is to Christ and to the people who are following Christ, the original promise. What I mean is this, verse 17, the law introduced 430 years later after the covenant given to Abraham does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise that was made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? Let me pause here for just a moment and note what he's saying so far in these first five verses. The promise of grace is greater than the gift of the law. What Paul's going to do here is start off by comparing the promise of the law given to Moses and the promise of grace which was given to Abraham. And the gift of the law, which was a promise God given to Moses, it was a wonderful gift. It was indeed a wonderful gift. And he's going to go on and talk about some of the purposes for that. But he says here that the promise God given to Abraham was far greater than the gift that was given to Moses. Now, you read the story of the gift of the law given to Moses in Exodus 19 and 20. It is pretty dramatic. It's awesome. Like you have thunder and lightning and Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he's shaking in his sandals. And you look down below and the people are frightened and this is great, great revelation of God. It's very, very dramatic, and it culminates, of course, with those two stone tablets inscribed by God. Dramatic, amazing display of God's glory. In comparison, the covenant God given to Abraham was rather undramatic. Like all it is is this gift to Abraham. Come out of your land of Ur and go into this promised land that I'm going to give you. And you can take a look, but you can't go in, Abram. And Abram says, yes, please. Thank you, God. And then he receives this gift from the grace of God, and that's it. It's really undramatic compared to the promise of Moses. And yet Paul is saying here that the gift, the promise given to Abram, is greater than the one God given to Moses. Why? Because it was before the one given to Moses. 430 years before the law was given to Moses, grace was given to Abraham. And also, it is this forerunner, if you will, of the future grace of the new covenant that would not be conditional. It would be the unconditional love of God poured out on people when they simply say yes to God. 
That's why it's greater. Okay? That's the first five verses. The promise of grace is greater than the gift of the law. It goes on to say here, again in 19, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time today, why then was the law given at all? The promise of grace was given, and it was greater. Why was the law given at all? What's its purpose, Paul's asking? It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were all held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. As we open up this morning's message, well, we just admit that this is a complex and deep and kind of philosophical passage as Paul goes into a deep, long history of the Israelite people, and we're seeking to understand the purposes of the law ourselves today. And so, Father, I really need your clarity as we talk about this message, as we talk about this text. I need your clarity. Uh, it's a difficult passage to really understand, but we want to mine its depths and begin to apply it to our lives. So would you please lead us, Lord? Open our minds, open our hearts to you. Help us to think well and to love you with our minds even today. Through Christ we ask. Amen. Okay, so uh, I, I want to suggest today that this passage gives us a couple different metaphors through which, well, we can think about the purposes of the law. And the two metaphors that I want to suggest today that we'll see out of this passage are the law is a mirror and the law is like railroad tracks. Here's the first one. The law is like a mirror that reveals our sinfulness and then our need for forgiveness. The law provides this standard by which we are to live. And if we're honest, could we just admit we all fall short of that standard, don't we? Every single one of us sins and falls short of our own standard, let alone the much higher standard of God. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? Because of transgressions. I would underline that in my Bible right now. The law was given to reveal to us our transgressions to reveal to us where we have sinned and fallen short of the mark of God. The Ten Commandments reveal to us that we already are sinners. It's like this universal mirror that helps us see our dirty faces, which then drives us to our knees, which then drives us to the cross, which is where we can be healed and cleansed. There was a monk who went into a monastery so that he could escape the wickedness of this world. You ever felt like doing that? I just want to escape the wickedness of this world all around us. 
But after a while, about being in the monastery, he realized that he couldn't escape the wickedness of this world because, as he put it, every night while when I went to bed, I saw dancing girls in my mind. You see, the corruption is not merely in the world. The corruption's right here. The line of sinfulness doesn't go through Moscow or Las Vegas or North Korea or any other place. It goes through each and every human heart. And so God in his grace gives us this law to reveal to us where we have fallen, where we have missed the mark, to draw us to the cross and increase our sense of dependency on God because that, my friends, is where growth happens when we are dependent on God. And truth be told, most of us don't really want to be dependent. We want to be independent. We want to be happy. But God's business, we remind ourselves today, is not to make us happy, is it? God's business is to make us more like Christ. God's business is to make us holy. God's business is to grow us in Christian character such that we would be more and more like him every day, such that we would admit, yes, it's true, I need help, me too. I was reading a couple weeks ago this series of tweets by uh, author and speaker Beth Moore. And Beth Moore was being criticized by some people online for something that she said. And a bunch of people were lobbying these insults to her on Twitter. Ick. Isn't that so cliche for our day? Throwing these criticisms online for the world to see. Like, don't, don't do that. And part of the criticisms were like, Beth Moore, you need to repent. And so I read her response and she said this. I can assure you of this. I fall on my knees every night and every day I repent. Wow. Like here's this brilliant woman, this brilliant speaker, and I've listened to her enough to know she has got a deep, robust relationship with God. And she says, every night, I fall on my knees and I do a bit of self-examination compared to the law of God and I repent. When was the last time we did this? When was the last time you did that? I, I can promise you this. If you took the next seven days, I can guarantee you this. You took the next seven days that every single night you look over your day, you look over the rhythms of your heart, the things that you said, the things that you did, each day over the next seven days, and then after seeing where you missed the mark, you look in the mirror of God's law and you repent. I can assure you of this, in seven days' time you will grow with Christ. I don't want to sell any snake oil, I want to tell you the truth. In seven days' time, that kind of activity of looking at the mirror of God's law and see where I have fallen short will grow us in Christ. It leads us to our knees. It points us to a Savior who forgives us each and every day. The law is a mirror. Second, the law is like railroad tracks. It's like railroad tracks that guide us toward character in Christ. So after we look in the mirror and we recognize our great need for God, then what comes next? 
But what comes next is God forgives us, and the next thing he does, he puts us on these railroad tracks to give us a guide to lead us toward our destination, which is Christ-like character. And that also is a purpose of the law, first to reveal our sins and lead us to our knees, and then to put us on tracks that point us in the right direction again, to give us guardrails within which we would live. This, in part, is God's means for restraining culture, and the law has, certainly, over the centuries, the Old Testament law and our American law as well, our Constitution and our laws, they've done a great job of restraining wickedness in our world over the centuries, and that's good. But even more than the descent of culture out there, the law provides a guide to protect us from yours truly. It provides a guide to protect us from ourselves and to lead us in the right direction toward Christ. You see, God gives the laws not to be a killjoy. God gives the laws because he wants you to have joy. You see, we are protected from ourselves and we actually thrive inside of certain boundaries. You want to find someone who does not thrive in life you'll find someone who doesn't live inside boundaries. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Of course it's not sinful. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so what he's doing here is drumming up this thanksgiving to God because of the law, because it reveals to us the truth of God, the goodness of God, the way of life, of living like Christ, way beyond the limits of our own conscience. You see, God has written some of himself into all of us through conscience, but conscience is very limited. By ourselves, many of us naturally would be greedy, wouldn't we? We would. By ourselves, many of us would think covetousness is no big deal. So God gives us this law, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And through that, we learn that this is off of the way that we are to live. So thanks be to God for the law. Verse 24 of Galatians 3 puts it this way. The law was our guardian. Okay, It was that which would keep us safe until Christ come that we may be justified by faith. You see, what God wants us to do is to live out of grace through faith, but the law still is this guardian. It's still these railroad tracks that would point us in the right direction. It guards us, it gives us a proper structure, and quite simply, we cannot thrive in life without proper structure. One of the most loving things that parents can do for their kids is to give them a set of moral rules that we say, these are our big five. Like, like these are the rules for our house, both for your safety and also for your development as a person that we do not trespass, and when we do trespass it, it's a big deal. We have a handful of those, and when you have those, your kids are able to thrive and live in freedom inside those structures. We do not thrive outside of structure. They keep us safe. They keep us moving in the right direction. 
Okay, so that's question number one. What are the purposes of the law for us as New Testament Christians today? Number one, it's a mirror. Number two, it's railroad tracks, though, that would keep us moving in the right direction. Second question, though, that we need to answer here, though, this morning is, which of the Old Testament laws apply to us today as New Testament Christians, and which ones do not apply anymore? There's three different categories of Old Testament law, and we started talking about this last week. I just want to reiterate it, and if you look at the outline that we handed out today, each of these three categories of Old Testament law are defined there for you, so you can have this little resource that perhaps you can come back to at a later date. But the first category of Old Testament law that you'd want to fill in there is what you would call the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial laws you read here on the outline are simply these. They're temporary cultural laws regarding things like food. This is not a comprehensive list. But regarding things like food, clothing, art, sacrifice system, hairstyle, circumcision, farming, diet, and on and on it could go. These temporary culturally based laws, hear me now, given to Israel for a time as God set, setting up a covenant people and making this covenant people to be very distinct from all of the other nations around them. To be very distinct, yes, in their worship, yes, in their morality, but also to be distinct in how they eat and how they dress and how they farm and on and on it could go. So, for example, as we talked about earlier out of Galatians chapter 2, one of those laws was circumcision. The other nations, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, they didn't do that. But God says to the Hebrews, you do this, well, with your Hebrew boys on the eighth day, and it's part of what makes you as a people distinct from all of them. The example that we used last week related to tattoos. The reason God told Israel not to get tattoos was because all the other nations, at least some of the other nations around them, would give tattoos as a way to worship their many gods. So it was like a form of worship as they were getting their arms tattooed with whatever the latest and greatest sleeve would be back then. That was their way of worshiping gods. And so he's saying to them, no, we don't do that. We, we, we worship one god. Now, last time I checked, people weren't tattooing for those same reasons. Maybe some people would, and God would say, don't do that. But these are culturally based, temporary, time-specific laws for Israel pre-Jesus. There's still things that we can learn from them, and we still want to ask the question, am I doing this, whatever it might be, to bring glory to myself, or am I doing it, whatever it might be, to bring glory to God? Second set of laws that you see in the Old Testament again and again are called civil laws. Again, in your outline, it says this. These are laws for the theocracy of Israel. The theocracy of Israel way back in 2000 B.C. and following. Regarding justice, taxes, protection of citizens, provision for the poor, and the like. These were laws given to Israel when they didn't have a king. Or a prime minister. Or a president. And God alone was their king. And he sets up this welfare system, and he sets up a constitution of sorts, and a justice system, and a mercy system that really did, in beautiful ways, set the people apart in terms of mercy and justice and compassion from the Amalekites, and the Hittites, and the Canaanites, and all of them. But we're not living in a theocracy anymore, last time I checked. 
And so these don't apply to us in the same way. Again, we can learn something about the heart of God by looking at those laws, but they don't apply to us in the same way. Now, the third kind of laws are those that do apply to us, at least I want to argue for you today, is the moral laws. And the moral laws are boundaries for all people at all times, given for our own benefit, given for our own thriving and flourishing today. So, which ones are the moral laws? I'm so glad you asked. Let me give you three questions that you can use in your reading of Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that will help you determine which of these are civil laws, which of these are ceremonial or cultural laws, and which of these are moral laws that would apply to us today. Here's the first. You see it up on the screen. It's not in your outline, but you might want to write it down. Is the law found at creation? Is this law that I am looking at, is it found at the very fabric of the universe? Is it found at the very beginning of creation? And if it was part of God's original creative order, I would argue that it still applies to us today. And so you see in Genesis 1 through 3, laws related to work and rest and marriage. And those laws, I believe, continue to apply today because they're part of the way God created us. God created us from the very beginning to need a rhythm of working really, really hard and then resting. He created us from the very beginning to flourish with certain other people, to operate with certain other people, and a sanctum, this sanctuary called, called marriage that he would have at the very beginning. Here's the second question. Did Jesus state that a law is obsolete? And so you want to ask yourself the question, do I see some place in the New Testament, either from Jesus or from one of the apostles, where it was explicitly stated that this law or this set of laws from the Old Testament is now obsolete? So, for example, we would be thinking right now of the sacrificial system, right? The sacrificial system was this system of laws that was designed to help the people of Israel worship God in anticipation of a sacrifice the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. So who is that Lamb of God? Jesus. So the sacrifice system is now obsolete. As Hebrews says again and again, God came and gave his Son for sin once for all time, the, the testimony given in the proper time. So Jesus came as the final sacrifice for all sin. The sacrifice system is no longer valid. Same thing in Acts chapter 10 with the laws of kosher, dietary restrictions and the like, hanging out with Gentiles. Peter is told, no person is unclean. Each person matters to God. That's contrary to much of what they expected out of the Jewish law. He's told there's nothing that's unclean. You can eat whatever you would like. So he renders some laws obsolete. Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament law. He kept them completely, but he renders some of them, the civil and the ceremonial law, particularly obsolete. Third, did Jesus expound upon any Old Testament law? And this is exactly what he does with the Ten Commandments, isn't it? He takes the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, which is the very center of his ethical teaching. He takes each one of those commandments, and he says also in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish any of the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he takes laws like do not murder, and he takes them further from outward behavior into the heart, and he says do not hate. He takes laws like do not commit adultery, and he takes them further from outward behavior into the heart, and he says don't even have lust in your eye. 
And on and on he goes through the entirety of the Ten Commandments there in the Sermon on the Mount. What's he doing there? He's affirming and he's expounding upon the Ten Commandments because they are moral laws for all people at all times. Does that make sense? Okay, so those three questions as you read through the Torah, as you read through those first five books of the Bible, those will help you determine which one is which, which ones are now obsolete and which ones are fulfilled by Jesus but still applicable for us today. Just take a look up on the screen at the Ten Commandments. Can I tell you today that those all still apply? Even number four. Even number four. You see, when Jesus got into these tussles with the Pharisees related to the Sabbath, it wasn't because the Sabbath was bad. The Sabbath is a great gift. The Sabbath is a gift of God that work would not become your master. You see? The Sabbath is a gift of God that money would not become our master that we would receive rest as a gift from God, as a regular rhythm to life. The reason he's tussling well, with the Pharisees on this is because they turned something beautiful that was given by God to us for our benefit, and they turned into a rule book to hit people with. Look at those again, those Ten Commandments. Let's leave those up on the screen. All of these remain applicable for us today. Just imagine with me if this standard of measurement was operating in our homes. Just imagine the difference it would make if this standard of measurement, just this one, not even going to the level of the heart, which Jesus does, was operating in our neighborhoods, was operating in the dormitory at school. Just imagine if this was operating across our community, across our nation. Friends, that would spell R-E-V-I-V-A-L. That would spell revival if that was happening here and now. Now, you can break it down even further from 10 to 2. Like if we really understood love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and we understand that those are basically Jesus' truncated versions of the top 10, and then we applied those with the top 10 far from there, that would be sufficient as well. I love the way philosopher and theologian Ravi Zacharias puts it. Uh, People sometimes ask, why 613 laws? Um, He he says this. The reason we have 17,000 pages in our law books, like we can make fun of the Jews with their 613 laws. We have 17,000 pages in our law books. The reason we have 17,000 pages in our law books is because we cannot follow 10 lines on a tablet made of stone. Isn't that so true? Is so true. And so we come back to this on a regular basis as a gift from God for us. The law fulfills these purposes for us. It's a mirror that shows us how we failed, leads us to our knees, leads us to the cross where we find forgiveness. And second, it's a standard. It provides these railroad tracks on which we would run. Let me wrap up though, this message with this final point. As important as the law is, as great as the law is, the overarching point across Galatians 3 is this. Gracious love melts hearts the way the law never could. Isn't that right? Gracious love melts hearts the way no law can ever melt your heart. 
And so God gives his gracious love to melt our hearts and turn him back to him, turn us back to him again. The law is so good for many, many reasons. It is these railroad tracks that give us the direction toward holiness, but the tracks are powerless to move the train. The tracks are powerless to move the train. It's the grace of God that is the engine that moves the train down the tracks, right? And some of us get into a pickle with our kids or with our spouses or in our workplaces because we expect the law to do what only the powerful grace of God can do in someone else's heart. I have to check this in myself on a regular basis Well, when it comes to my rules with my kids that I really want them to follow. Am I asking my rules and my laws to do in my kids' hearts what only the powerful grace of God and love of their mom and dad can actually do in their hearts? You see, we really don't believe in Pavlovian psychology here. We don't. We don't think our kids are Pavlovian dogs. We don't believe that behavior modification is nearly enough. It won't get to our kids' hearts. It won't get to anyone's hearts. Rules do not change the heart by themselves. I love the way Paul David Tripp puts it in his wonderful book, Parenting, gospel principles that can radically change your family. And our life group voyaged through this over the past year, and we're trying to apply these principles to our house right now. And he says it so beautifully. He says, if rules and regulations had the power to change the heart and life of your child, rescuing your child from himself and giving him a heart of submission and faith, Jesus would have never needed to come in the first place. But we know that Jesus didn't need to come because mere rules and regulations aren't enough to melt the heart. Our kids need the same exact thing that we need, which is love and grace and acceptance and forgiveness and more grace and then structure and then loving, strong structure points them in the way of Christ. I have a good friend who shared with me a story last week. It was so powerful I had to share it with you. He told me that when he was in high school, he decided to get high on marijuana on a number of occasions. He wasn't from Colorado. <laughs> Hold your jokes, y'all. He was from our lovely state. And uh, he got caught as the story goes, not by his dad, but by someone else in the church who told his dad. And his dad came to him and he confronted him on the issue and said, is this true? Is this, what's going on? Are you, are you doing this? And his son said, yeah, dad, it is true. I, I, I'm sorry. Now, what you do next is of vital importance. What you do in that moment when you catch your kid is of vital importance. And here's what that man did. He stayed calm. And then they talked. 
and explain to them, you know, we, we believe in the laws of this land and we're going to follow the laws of this land. And even if the laws of this land change, we're going to follow God. And in following God, we want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by some foreign substance. And you are being controlled by a foreign substance, and that's why this is a problem. Do you understand, my son, why this is a problem? Yeah, I, I get it, Dad. I'm sorry. Well, son, God loves you so much, his dad said. God forgives you completely of all of your failures, including this one. And I want you to know, son, that I love you so much, and I forgive you totally as well. My friend told me last week that as he was sharing that story with me and he broke up a little bit, he said, I will never forget that conversation with my dad and I never smoked weed again. Why? Because gracious love melts hearts in ways that mere rules never can. And he experienced his dad's gracious love coming to him in that moment. And his dad was able to do that because he personally had experienced the gracious love of God in such a profound way that he was overflowing with love to be able to give it to his son and guide him slowly back to the railroad tracks of the law after he had received the gracious love of God himself. Friends, you are loved by God far more than you deserve. You are forgiven by God far more than we could ever forgive anyone. And out of his love, when we fail, our God does what that father did. He picks us back up and he puts us back on the railroad tracks again and again that we would follow him with all he has given us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we do thank you for your law. We probably don't say that enough, but we're wise to say it this morning. We're very thankful, Lord, for the law in that it, it shows to us our dirty faces. It shows to us where we have missed the mark. And it leads us to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ where we can find forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for the laws that you would have for us today, that they provide guardrails inside of which we can actually flourish as human beings. You're not a killjoy, Lord. You're a joy giver. And so you give the law so that we would flourish in life. You give the law so that we would have a direction to move toward the character of Christ who was the most joyous person to ever live. And so we thank you for the law. And we just admit, Lord, that when we fail, what we need is not to be yelled at. What we need is not always a reinforcement of every single rule. What we need is the grace of God coming from our good, good Father who refuses to leave us when we fail who refuses to shame us when we've done something embarrassing, who invites us back into his love again and again because he is a good, good father. It's to him we pray. It's to him we give thanks. It's to him we sing even now. To you be all glory in the church now and forever. God, our Father, Father.